and welcome once again to another, and this time a very special episode of the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Crystal. I'm Matt. I'm Sylvia. I'm Vera. I'm Alex. This time, we are reaching the end of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Faithful listeners, we recognize it has been quite a while that we've been working on this first book, but we have pressed on through, we have persevered, and now we reach the final goal. Chapter 16, The Man with Two Faces. Before we jump into the action, we want to remind you that if you have questions or comments for us, you can reach us at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com, and you can also keep up to date on Instagram and Twitter by following us at the handle at hpbcpodcast. I almost forgot our Twitter handle, but then it came to me at the last second, so we recovered that one nicely. Um, we do want to say we are planning on having a special Q&A bonus episode up next, after we finish uh, Sorcerer's Stone. We got some wonderful comments and questions uh, in during this last break in advance of this episode. Uh, questions about what Draco Malfoy would see in the Mirror of Erised. Uh, how is magic functioning as its own almost intelligent character in the stories? Uh, what was Voldemort like in the lead-up to the first war, and was that different than the lead-up to the second? Some really thoughtful stuff that have got us thinking, and we want to devote a special episode to that. If you've got questions or comments that you would like to be included, uh, possibly in that podcast, then we invite you to send them to us. We would love to consider them and possibly share our thoughts on the air. Well, friends, are we ready to jump into the final chapter? Yeah. Yeah, quick disclaimer. Uh, Teddy is here with us, so he may be making some noises while he plays. Yeah. On that point, we did have one uh, fan, Ben, write in and say, Hogwarts was a place for children. Keep a space for your children. So we have at least one w listener who really enjoys the fact that our, our little ones are keeping it real with us here uh, as we record our podcast. But friends, let's, let's jump into The Man with Two Faces. All right. It was Quirrell. That's, that's the first line. <laughs> right. Which yeah. feels kind of underwhelming to me now on the like seventh read of this book, but I remember the first time I read it, it blew my mind. Yeah. You know, if you don't already know the twist, it's a huge twist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it really was. Um, but yeah, just that simple, it was Quirrell. Well, I was really interested. Um, I'm not sure if you all keep up with, like, the Pottermore short stories that J.K. Rowling sometimes releases. But she has a specific um, little excerpt, I guess, about Professor Quirrell. And one thing that she mentions is that his first name, Quirinius, is actually sort of a clue to us. Uh, Corinius Janus, I think, is the by name for the Roman god who's most associated with war. But uh, Janus is Janus is also uh, the god with two faces, and he looks forward and backward. So I thought that was really interesting that within his name, really, like we find out here that it was Quirrell, but really, if we thought about like him being two-faced, not meaning necessarily Voldemort in the back of his head, but like he has two faces, as in he's putting on this front that he's a good guy, but really he's a bad guy. Mm -hmm. um, we would have known, you know, up front if we had any indication about who Roman right. <laughs> these Roman gods are. Yeah. yeah, she's got a lot of those names that give you clues. I feel like we could do a whole episode just on JK's names. Mm -hmm. They're so deep 
and even when they don't have like a specific tie to mythology, they still can sometimes give you a clue with the etymology. Yeah. Like with Voldemort. Or Remus Lupin. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or <laughs> Professor Sprout. <Right>. Like <laughs> in that family, you've your career path is pretty much set for right. you. It's yeah. like when parents name a child Jeeves. Like you're you're gonna be a butler. <laughs> butler. Like there's no other options. His last name, too, though, she mentions in that little excerpt that quarrel is supposed to sort of be the hidden meaning there is, like, you know, you think of squirrel or maybe the word quiver where it's someone who's nervous or cute maybe or, um, you know, meek. But then his first name is sort of the, you know, the opposite of that. Mm. I thought that was really interesting. That is. Yeah. I'd never come across that. But those are fascinating things when you Mm -hmm. find the little clues in the names. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting to me that... On this first page of the chapter, we immediately jump into the literary device where the evil villain starts explaining mm-hmm. his Everything. dastardly plot. Yeah. And I'm like, it, again, it's like the first time you read through it, you're so shocked by the fact that it's poor Professor Quirrell right. that you're like, oh my gosh, I need to soak up all of this information that he's sharing. But, you know, on the umpteenth time through... It just sounds like a villain monologue. Yeah, it's like... Why are you telling him this? this is a really helpful way to keep this chapter (laughs) from ballooning in size, but to give us all the details we need. Right. And explain just a lot of really helpful material right off the bat. Now, there's a moment a little bit later where Harry says he knew he had to keep Quirrell talking, like, to distract him from the mirror. I wish she'd put that just a little bit sooner... Because yeah. it's just, it's so much like, yes, and that's why, you know, I did all of this, and Snape got in my way, and this specific detail, and, you know, why are you telling him that? You don't need to tell him all that. I think maybe she like, used... shut up, Potter, I'm looking for the stone. Yeah, maybe she used it at first. I mean, of course, Harry is just completely shocked, and, I mean, he's just kind of blurting out questions like, I thought it was Snape, you know, that was the one that was after me, and he's like, ah, ha, ha, no, of course, it was me. <laughs> Snape was trying to save you the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, but then once he realizes, okay, what's going on, back to his real mission is, oh, uh, Quirrell's after the stone here, and I've, I, I've got to stop him. You know, Dumbledore's away. Maybe i I got to bid for time here. i got to keep him, keep him going. And, right. yeah, then it does work, I think, yeah. as a good plot device for him to ask questions, and then we get the answers to them. And I think maybe, I don't know, maybe it's because Quirrell has been in this, like, sniveling little persona yeah. for so long, he wants to show somebody how he's mm. this mastermind. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. and so, I don't know, I guess with every villain, they really want to confess their crime, and so right. he's just found a captive audience that he's going to kill anyway, so it doesn't matter if he knows everything. Yeah. Right. But, again, that's part of the literary device, yeah. is always the villain says, well, I can afford to tell you because you're going to die here anyway. <laughs> so, in fact, I will go into incredible detail <laughs> into the past nine months of plotting. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I wish there was some way to know whether or not this literary device that is like so ubiquitous in all kinds of, you know, kinds of tales where the the villain always has to have this monologuing expositional moment at the end. It would be great to know how real that is. Like, if if you're ever captured by some, in a bank heist, and the bank that seems like the villains are about to make it out with the money, and you're, you know, one of the hostages there, if you say, why did you do it? 
Did they launch into a ten-minute explanation of, oh, I I knew I could figure this all out. I was smarter than them. I would hope not if speed is a factor. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I was hoping you'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> Pulls out a squirrel from... Exactly. I, I think, though, uh, Vera, your point about it being Quirrell, especially, who's, who's quiet and disrespected, uh, that there being some sort of psychological desire yeah. to mm. justify himself... And to change the perception, even if it's only in the eyes of somebody that he's going to kill, mm-hmm. yeah, that that does, I think, add a certain level of believability to it. Right. Well, I, I think, I mean, you're right in that, yes, it, it is used as a literary device here, but, I mean, there's an element of, like, we all want to be uh, respected, right. you know, and so, like, here, you, you're actually seeing, like, oh, it was me, and, like, you didn't know, and ha, 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 you right. know, I mean, it was... It's one of those that goes down to the well, basic human nature. And if we think, whose delight does Quirrell desire most? It's the other person who is an audience member. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, going on this monologue about how well he's done, uh-huh. and didn't I fool you, Harry? Aren't you, know, aren't you so surprised and shocked at how perfectly I pulled this off? He may be saying it for the benefit right. of the guy that... You know, from the reader's perspective, we don't even know is on the back of his head. That's a good yet. point. He's talking himself up to his boss. The other thing, too, in that Pottermore article that J.K. Rowling mentioned, she gives a little background on Quirrell that we don't learn in the first book, is that when he was at Hogwarts, he was in Ravenclaw, and you know Ravenclaws are known for being like wise and smart, and he was often overlooked and laughed at a lot. Um, so the whole reason he actually went looking for Voldemort in the first place was because he wanted this claim to fame. Mm. So that kind of makes it a little more plausible, too, that he's like, you know, he's been laughed at his whole life, and now he can finally do the laughing at Harry. Mm. Yeah. When you start pressing into this guy, he becomes far more of a tragic figure then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you start bringing people's you know past experience in and what potentially helped make them the kind of person who could even make these decisions in the first mm-hmm. place. Because it's very easy to see Quirrell as not a really carefully developed character. You know, we see him a couple times, but really chapter 16 is the only time we really focus on him, and then he's gone. Um, But when you start pressing into the details a little bit more, I I think we can have an appreciation for who he is and why he's doing what he's doing in a way that I I don't know that I've ever really appreciated until right now. Right. Yeah, Yeah, it it kind of makes you think... He may not be quite so evil as we initially thought, and that it's just that Voldemort has, um, not possessed, what's the word, he's caused him to believe these things about the world that aren't true. You know, the the line he said, yeah, corrupt, that's the word I was looking for, corrupted, he's corrupted him to believe these things about power um, that maybe he didn't believe, and that someone who has been made fun of his whole life and who's always sought power in a different way, you know, that would make them, it would be easy for someone like that to sort of fall in line with that belief system. And then we see how easily Voldemort disposes of him. Um, he's, you know, he, he's just used for Voldemort's purposes, and then he's disposable. Right. Like Wormtail. I'm just thinking of someone else Yeah. who came to him, you know, from a similar situation. And Snape, ultimately, too. No, pretty much everyone. I mean, oh, yeah. Dumbledore's line at the end is prophetic as much as it is retrospective. Voldemort shows as much mercy 
to his followers as to his enemies. And we'll see that borne out over and over again. What's interesting is this line that Quirrell recites, which is, is justifiably famous, and it's got you know philosophical connections with our own world. There is no good and evil. There is only power and those too weak to seek it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, immediately the, the modern philosopher that comes to mind is Friedrich Nietzsche, who sort of pioneered this way of thinking and gave rise to a whole school of thought um, who said that really traditional conceptions of morality are uh, for weak people. Mm -hmm. And the truly strong, the superman, uh, is the one who transcends these ways of looking at the world and takes his destiny and his morality into his own hand. Mm -hmm. And Quirrell, I think, finds a kind of liberation in that. Yeah. And yet he doesn't recognize that he can just as easily become prey to that kind of philosophy, which is exactly what happens. Because if there's no good and evil, only power, and those too weak to seek it, then Voldemort has no sort of obligation of loyalty to this person who's devoted himself to following him. And the moment Voldemort's power is uh, served by doing, quote, wrong to Quirrell, he'll do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, so it may be a, a kind of initially sort of intellectually liberating discovery, but existentially it's a death trap. Because that, I mean, that way of working one's way through the world is totally insecure. And it means there's no such thing as trust in relationships. It requires a kind of self-delusion in order to buy into it. You always have to think there's some kind of exception to yourself. Because you'll have to recognize the general rule is everyone is always disposable at any time. Mm -hmm. Except me. Except me. Right. For whatever. And we see again and again how people fall into this way of thinking, oh, I'm exempt because of whatever. I'm exempt because I'm pure blood. Or I'm exempt because... I've proven that I'm the one who's most truly loyal, or I'm the one, fill in the blank. Yeah. yeah. Well, and But it's interesting, because you do see the Death Eaters fighting amongst themselves throughout the books, like trying to one-up the other, like, well, I did this, and the Dark Lord is going to find me his most, most faithful follower. I'm going to be rewarded for this. It's like, do you, did you not remember, like, the key premise upon which Death Eatery is founded. <laughs> there is no good and evil, only power. He's not going to reward you. Like he's he, he right. doesn't. He's never going to owe anyone anything. He's only going to seek after power and consider you too weak to seek it if you can't ultimately defeat him. Right. It's just interesting because this. This philosophical idea could have been pulled straight out of the pages of modern philosophy. Um, and yet, the rest of the story of Voldemort and the Death Eaters and, and their experiences are sort of a narrative exploration of how this, this way of navigating the world ultimately doesn't work out well. Yeah, It's, it's destructive to human ways of relating and existing. I've just been ever so subtly informed that this is chapter 17, not 16, like I have said 24 times already in this episode. 17.
Vera, take it away. Okay. Um, one thing that was strange to me when we were reading through the chapter again last night, um, Dumbledore says at, in the wrap-up at the end that his brilliant idea with the mirror was that only someone who wanted to find the stone, find it, but not use it, would be able to get it, right? Um, and Harry was able to get it because he just wanted to have it. But Quirrell says, I see myself presenting the stone to my master. Hmm. So he was also not seeing himself using the stone. And, well, unless he wanted to use this the gift of the stone to his master for his purposes. I don't know. To, but then it, but then it doesn't protect himself. it at all because we, right. we knew yeah. that it wasn't going to be Voldemort himself trucking down there. At least I think Dumbledore knew that. Hmm. So it doesn't protect it from any of his followers. It just protects him, it from someone that actually was going to see themselves drinking elixir, basically. Hmm. So why couldn't Quirrell get uh, the stone? I've got another one. Now okay. Voldemort is a part of Quirrell because right. somehow, you know, and so a part of Quirrell is wanting now to use the stone as well. Uh-huh. Because, I mean, we've seen that, you know, with the Horcruxes, like Harry's scar, uh, you know, there's a link between Harry and Voldemort. You know, the diary, there's a link, you know, between... I, I'm just speculating right now. Well, making but like, that argument, right. Voldemort's also a part of Harry. Yeah, because so then why didn't, right, right, of, right. why didn't that part of Harry stop right, I didn't think it through. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Devil's advocate. I like it. Any other theories? Because this is stumping me a little bit. This just makes me think that Voldemort is actually a part of us all. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm getting from this. Yeah. So we could use Dumbledore's phrase a, a bit more figuratively, metaphorically. Because Quirrell still wants to use the stone. He wants to get something out of it. Mm. He doesn't want to use it necessarily for the elixir of life, but he wants to use it to get glory, uh, fame, approval from his master. Um, And so maybe it's that type of using, Mm. that turning the stone into an instrument of one's own prosperity, that is the, the key difference between uh, what Quirrell is doing and what Harry's doing. Mm. If we're trying to work some consistency out between what Dumbledore is saying and what we're, what we're finding here, maybe that's a way. To me, this is still an outrageous risk. I mean, why not, Dumbledore, just make it so that, like, yourself and McGonagall are the only people that can take out the stone from the Mirror of Arisen? Simpler rule... Uh, it only applies in two circumstances, and so long as himself and like one other person aren't actually there to pull out the stone from the mirror, no way Voldemort can get it out. Hmm. I found I found Dumbledore's quote. Uh, I'm glad you asked me that. It was one of my more brilliant ideas, and between you and me, that's saying something. You see, only one who wanted to find the stone, find it but not use it, would able would be able to get it. Otherwise, they'd just see themselves making gold or drinking elixir of life. Quirrell says he sees himself presenting the stone to his master. Mm-hmm. Maybe, so it's just a little bit muddy for maybe me. Maybe Quirrell did want to use it. Who knows? I don't think he was lying? I mean, he's he's definitely been lying this entire book, you know, to all the students and the staff. I mean, with his true purposes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... Uh, yeah, we, we I don't think we can discount that because nobody can see it. And remember... Harry still doesn't know, but Quirrell knows. Voldemort's listening. Mm-hmm. He's in the back of his head. And if Quirrell says, I see myself taking the stone and 
Making oh, gold and, and uh, drinking it. Giving Voldemort's going to right. say what now? Yeah. 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 <laughs> this is not what we agreed. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and Dumbledore does say later, you know, quarrel full of hatred and greed and ambition. You know, and so may- maybe Dumbledore was inferring that Quirrell would want the stone for himself as well. I don't know. That That's is a particularly vulnerable position to be in for Voldemort. And to have the elixir of life in your hand and Voldemort on the back of your head. Uh, that's probably a, a height of power that Quirrell could only have dreamed of. Well, before we move on from this little section, um, we should point out, uh, coming off of some conversations we had in previous episodes, that this is the place where Quirrell confirms that Voldemort sort of attached himself on after the Gringotts break-in. Yes. Which is why he was able to shake Harry's hand with no sort of bad consequences in the Leaky Cauldron. Mm-hmm. So that was a question that we had worked on and, and developed an answer to. We've got literary confirmation of it here. I I thought it was funny, though, before Harry gets the big reveal about what's under the turban, um, we see that Harry breathed in the funny smell that seemed to come from Quirrell's turban. The, the funny stench mm-hmm. shows up yet again, and this just raises more questions for me. So that never gets answered. About why is Voldemort so stinky? But stink? then if you look it's at the illustration horrible. at the start of the chapter, there is a stench there cloud <gasps> coming up from the back of Quirrell's head. And I put a little Ew. note. Garlic stench? Question but, mark? But there are no garlic bulbs that fall out, right? Like, I feel like she would have said oil. that. Hmm. It's just, I wish he would explain why. I mean, I'm sure he does not get a lot of chance to brush his teeth back there. I mean, there's you know, all kinds of, <laughs> there's all kinds of different reasons why, you know. So, to me, I mean, I, I don't get why you guys are even bringing this up. It's easy for me. Obviously, he's <laughs> just bad breath. Yeah. That's it. Gingivitis. <laughs> oh. That's so weird. I know. Well, I mean, you only have a face to take care of. Right, like your whole body is literally just your face. If but it's you just wrapped up all day. You know, he has no sweaty. hands to take care of his face. He's he a servant to take care. Well, I mean, if you just think about, like, I don't know if you've ever, you know, had the experience with like a baby who wears a helmet. Mm. Like the sweet little innocent babies, those helmets smell terrible because they've just been on their head all day. So to me, that's that's not too far of a stretch to think that something that's like wrapped in his head. Plus, this thing's been drinking, like, unicorn blood. Right. Can't smell good. It's not good for the gingivitis. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can get on board with it the being smelly. cloud. I never noticed this. <laughs> so, the, the plot's sort of action continues to develop mm-hmm. because Voldemort recognizes that Harry's lying about whether or not he knows where the stone is. Mm-hmm. He says, he lies, he lies. Do you all think that Voldemort, even in this weakened state, is exercising legitimacy, even right now? Definitely. I don't think so. I, don't think so. I have a hard time believing that he has the strength for legitimacy. Um, and then also, like, one of the main things we learn is that you have to have eye contact. And at that point, he's still wrapped up in the turban. 
But mm-hmm. doesn't Voldemort use his connection with Harry without eye contact to sort of dupe Harry we later don't, on? But we only see that once he's returned to his body. Really? And we don't know that he's aware of the connection right now, because I think initially the connection takes Voldemort by surprise, too. True. But, but he Later. wouldn't have to be aware of the connection to benefit from the connection, if that makes sense. Like, if he's trying to... Like, is he just guessing at this point? I think so. By, I think Harry is 11 and he lying. doesn't have well, a lot of practice at lying, and he's probably showing his hand. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, you think he is very young. And, I mean, I guess the younger you are, usually, you know, you can tell when a kid is lying. saying, like, are you telling me the truth? No. <laughs> no. I mean, so I, there, there's that element. But Well, Harry also, like, kind of stutters. He says, I see myself shaking hands with Dumbledore, he invented. I, I've won the House Cup for Gryffindor. So it's not like he's got a confident answer. He's sort but of stammering. He, he, uh, confused Quirrell. I mean, so well, Quirrell, he, he, he cursed again and pushed him out of the way of the mirror. Right, get out of my way. I'm like, you're, you're no help. Um, so, and, and also Voldemort was able to uh, tell that Harry got the stone in his pocket. I mean, like, it was right there. I mean, how did True. how did that happen? Um, so, th- I mean, there's something that's going on that is unseen, I think. Unless Harry's just feeling around in his pocket and it's like, oh, what you got there? You know, what, what, what you got in your pocket? Well, yeah. we do learn later, I guess, that Voldemort has a propensity to tell when people are lying. Mm-hmm. Like, even in the orphanage, when we meet him in, like, book six, he, he says, like, tell the truth. Like, he's yelling at Dumbledore. So he's got this, like, innate thing in him. I mean, Dumbledore wasn't lying at the time, but he's he's got this idea that people are, you know, not trustworthy, maybe, or he can sense or sense when someone's lying as he says that too maybe in book four i can't remember um but he's got just a different magic about him almost um yeah i think he can be you know intuitive and intelligent in this instance without using legitimacy right yeah i have a hard time believing it's legitimacy i guess just because the eye contact thing Maybe it's illegitimate legitimacy. Mm. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> illegitimacy. If what if it's related to, you know, we know that he has sort of combined elements of snake-like features into his own mm-hmm. self. We know that even this face has slits instead mm-hmm. of a true nostrils. And red eyes. And red eyes. Mm-hmm. And we, mm-hmm. um, snakes often can um, detect through glands in their nose, body temperature. Hmm. So perhaps one other feature to this that's maybe less of a, a magical thing right now because he sort of magically imbued himself with these natural abilities. Now he can sort of sense the growing, you know, the flush in Harry's face as he's lying, the, the excitement, maybe even the quicker heartbeat, things like that, but then... But he would would have, all be signs of lying. He would have a high heart rate anyway, because this adult has already said he's going to kill him. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. Like he's but surrounded, the change, he's the surrounded change. in flames. You know, in this no, room, there's quarrel there. I mean, it's a scary place. I think yeah, for anybody his, to be. His heart rate's going to be high. Well, yes. But I still like your theory. The change. Yeah, it's not about Is what it's, it's possible. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think you make a good point though about the other fire being around. I have no idea to what degree you can. If you're in a heat detection sort of mode, infrared camera or something like that, can you really tell when when there's fire and then a person like nearby, you know? 
Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like somehow, maybe he's not reading Harry's mind, but there is some type of intuition going there. So I guess maybe that's a soft stance on the mind reading. Um, but, like, there's something, I mean, he knows. He knows that Harry just got the stone. And it's and, in his and pocket. It's in its pocket. Yeah, in his he pocket. names it. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, there's something going on where, like, he's able to either read Harry very well because Harry's so young and can't hide it, or there's some type of intuition, some soft type of mind reading going on where Harry's disposition is completely changed. Now Harry's got what he wanted, he got the stone, and Quirrell does not have it, and he's just trying to get out of there now. Hmm. Well, the last thing I'll say about that, because I am in support of Alex's theory with the snake-like behavior, is that in book four, when he does get his body back and the Death Eaters join him in that circle, I can't remember exactly what Voldemort says, but it's something along the lines of, I smell deception, I smell lies. So there's something to that theory, I yeah. think. Mm -hmm. Don't know what it is, but I think I, I like that theory. Mm. So I I heard a rumor that Matt has developed his color theory. I have, I have I developed I it a little jump bit more. Ahead, I, but yeah, um, to hear about that. You know, let I will do that. Let's let's finish and get out of this room. Maybe I'll I'll do it a, in, in a little bit. But yeah, I think we're gonna have some fun. Um, oh with, with colors, listeners, everyone. stay tuned. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're gonna have some fun. So please keep listening. Well, one of the things that Voldemort says to Harry, uh, as Harry is sort of resisting giving the stone back, is, uh, don't be a fool. Better save your own life and join me, or you'll meet the same end as your parents. Uh, do you all think that this is a genuine offer from Voldemort to Harry? Or is it purely manipulation? I think it's legitimate. And one of the reasons I think it's legitimate is because I don't think anything would hurt Dumbledore more than to bring the boy who lived, you know, that Dumbledore has been coaching and watching so carefully. And and I think Voldemort knows that because of Quirrell. He's been in the back of Quirrell's head. He knows the closeness between Dumbledore and Harry. And, like, how painful would it be to Dumbledore if Harry did turn over, you know, his goodness i guess and choose evil and i don't think it would be for harry himself i think it would even be a little bit of a sacrifice for voldemort because he obviously wants harry dead but it would be worth it if it hurt dumbledore hmm. so i was wrestling with this and at first my thought was well, he can't be making this offer because he knows about the prophecy. Mm. But, of course, he doesn't know all of the prophecy. So that wouldn't be a sort of psychological barrier. So I found, found myself sort of taking a middle road that uh, Voldemort is interested in having Harry come over to his side to the extent that whatever power Harry has is in service of Voldemort's higher aim. And yet, as soon as Harry proved an obstacle rather than a help, Voldemort's lack of loyalty would, would be directed at Harry. So he's not offering a sort of permanent safeguarding under his wing, so much as he's saying, stop fighting against me, come for me, help benefit me, 
but you know we've got Dumbledore in the back of our minds again again that um, Voldemort shows as much mercy to followers as to enemies and so for Harry that wouldn't really be a more safe place to be yeah I think that's I think that falls in line with Voldemort's character a lot like you know use him as long as he's beneficial to me and then destroy him yeah so is it a genuine offer well for the time being right yeah but yeah. the moment it stops being helpful yeah offer sure. rescinded well I, I think the next point we need to jump to is what is going on the, the strange bit of magic here mm. that happens when Quirrell touches Harry as uh Hands start to blister, um, get shiny, and I mean, it's almost like touching a hot stove. You know, something is happening. Uh, And we get the explanation from Dumbledore as the love of his mother shielding him or protecting him. What what did you guys think about that? That strange or odd piece of magic. I love that that falls within the theme of like all of the books, all the way up to book seven. That that Dumbledore tells, you know, Voldemort over and over um, about their types of magic that Voldemort doesn't understand. And, like, that love is more powerful than this dark magic. And I think that this is the first example of that. It's He, he literally cannot stand to touch the sacrifice that Lily made. And I just think that's a really pretty picture of, you know, that seeing that. And then it, you know, it ends up killing Quirrell. So Voldemort, you know, you, again, he throws someone... To, to death again, you know, to save himself. It just shows again how much he cannot understand love and relationship. It's strange to me. I mean, I get the initial, I get the initial sees him, right? Because Harry has this stone physically in his pocket and he's running. So sees him. Quirrell goes for him, can't touch him, is like burned by the touch. But then Voldemort keeps saying, sees him. And so my thought is, why not resort to magic at this point to restrain Harry and get the stone? Hmm. Why do we keep touching Harry when we know that we can't touch Harry? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, you know, maybe it's just like this frenzy, like Voldemort's so close and he doesn't really care if Quirrell gets hurt. So just, just keep trying and get the stone. I need the stone. Um, that's kind of how it is in my mind. He's just not thinking logically at this point because he's so close. Yeah, I think they were in close proximity to one another. You know, it's just, it's right there. I guess, I mean, a muggle would obviously think, you know, seize him. Okay, grab him. I mean, and maybe a a wizard would, you know, pull out his wand. Maybe that's the first thing. But, you know, they're right there, close proximity. He says seize him, and he tries to grab him, you know, and he's like, "I, I can't touch him. And then I think we get down... Uh, a little bit further, and Harry realizes there's something going on. And I think even before they're able to pull out a right, wand right. And, and use it, Harry goes after him, you know, with his own hands. Yeah. But then let's not even forget that there's something also happening to Harry here. I mean, he's getting every time that Quirrell touches him. I mean, it's burning pain, he's scarred, and yeah. you know, it almost seems like it's killing Harry as well um, when yeah. Quirrell is touching well, him. Well, Dumbledore does say later, you know, the yeah, effort almost. Yeah, it almost, almost killed, killed you. you. So that's just what I, I'm wondering. What is going on here? And I, I didn't have a, a great answer to it. Well, we know that Voldemort touching Harry hurts Harry. Like when we're in the graveyard, Voldemort touches Harry on his scar and it's searing terrible pain. 
So this is the first time he's really feeling that because he's felt kind of a prickling in his scar when Voldemort is near, right? But we've yeah. never really felt the actual physical touch from Voldemort. And it's a lot. <laughs> and, you know, maybe there is something to um, this magic working itself through Harry, this protective magic that also takes something out of him. You yeah. know, I'm not sure why, it, why it's so much that it almost kills him to... Yeah. To use that magic on coral. Yeah, I did not feel like there was a, a great answer to that question, you know, that I could think of. That's why I wanted, you know, to pose it to you, mm -hmm. to you all, and see if there was anything you came up with, anything that you guys could think of, and listeners also as well. I mean, is there mm -hmm. anything that you can think of? Like, why is this hurting Harry so much to the point of death? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I because I get, I, I'm, I'm willing to believe that there's a shield around Harry, and I know why it's hurting Quirrell. Mm -hmm. I mean, why he's not able to touch Harry. But I don't get why the touch is also just killing Harry. Right. Other than, you know, like, yes, it's Dumbledore. Uh, sorry, yes, it's Voldemort, right. and he's, you know, I, I mean, anytime Voldemort's around, Harry's scar hurts. But there, I think there is something that's compounded by the actual physical touch, like we see in the graveyard when when he's touching him. But at that point, it doesn't hurt Voldemort anymore because of the resurrection spell that he worked, right? Yeah. Um, but now it's destructive on both sides. So there's just something really, really painful. I guess as the pain in Harry's head was building and he's holding on and holding on as tight as he can to quarrel. So there's some physical strength involved, but it's mostly just that touch with Voldemort that's yeah. so painful. Yeah. It, it, he's hearing Voldemort yell, kill him, kill him, and other voices, maybe in Harry's own head, crying, Harry, Harry. Yeah. So it's almost like um, with the Dementor, where he starts to kind of tunnel back to that moment when his parents died, yeah. and he hears a woman screaming. Um, there's something about this, like, undiluted pain and connection with Voldemort that takes him back to a traumatic place that I think is also yeah. debilitating in a way. Well, I'm wondering also with the Harry Harry, I, I like that, like, do we think that that could possibly be Dumbledore? I've always thought you know, that was like, Dumbledore. Like, really? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I love that. I mean, that's beautiful. Oh, you know, I, yeah. In, in it just, in my head, but, it was his parents. Yeah, but I'm thinking, you know, like, did Dumbledore, this is the time where he entered. You know, yeah. Harry's blacking out right now. He's he's fighting tooth and nail. You know, it's so painful. And he's going under. Then all of a sudden, Harry, yeah. Harry, and he passes out. I always you know. thought it was Dumbledore, but it could be because the next time Harry's conscious, it's Dumbledore, yeah. like, standing over him. Yeah, right? I don't think we'll know, but, I mean, I like, I like it, it could I love be. What you because, yeah, I like both those. Yeah, he does have flashbacks during some of his more emotional times, you know, with Voldemort, for sure. That's the shortest nap ever. He likes to take short naps. Well, one thing I wanted to jump back to really quick, if we can, because it's always, like, kind of rubbed me the wrong way, is when Voldemort is talking about James putting up a courageous fight. Mm -hmm. Because we know that that's actually not true. Like, it, it depends on your definition of courage, because the fact that he had no wand in his hand when Voldemort actually came to their door, and he told Lily, you know, take Harry and run, um, I'll hold him off. Like, that's courageous in one way, but he didn't really put up a fight. 
because he was blast aside, like, instantly. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, it could just be, you know, the difference from, like, one book and then we move on to the more you – know, it's it's a more – I think it's a more beautiful picture in the seventh book. But, you know, here we get the the idea that James actually, like, fought Voldemort. Right. Yeah. What? Well, I, I mean, you know, I feel like that is courageous, you know. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. would say it is. I mean, like, you know, you know you're getting ready to go up against – Voldemort, who is the, the the darkest wizard around, you know, nobody's been able to stand up to him, and you're wandless. Yeah. I mean, like, obviously, it's it's a move out of desperation. You know, it's not a calculated move on his part, but it's a suicidal almost move where you are just trying to, in in almost the same way that uh, his mother, yeah. you know, blocked Harry. Yeah. He's trying to put his body using his body in front and to place it in front of his loved ones, his wife yeah. and his son, you know, trying everything yeah. he can in that one moment to, to stop Voldemort. And that's all he knows how to do. It's very... But it's still not it's a very, fight. Well, it's human. I mean, it, it, it is, and it's beautiful, but it's still not a fight. Well, Voldemort also says, they died begging me for mercy, and we know that's not the right. case either. So he could just be trying, like, different tactics yeah. to well, get at Harry. Yeah. They, I think, isn't that where Harry tells him, like, you, you're lying? Yeah, you're lying. Right? And so then he's like, oh... I value bravery. Your father was very right. brave. You know, so it's just, he's just trying different so things. So manipulative. Yeah to, yeah, to get at Harry, I think. Yeah. Just That's a tactical true. change. That's true. So, you know, none of that is true. Right. <laughs> Except for Lily dying to protect him. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. But I don't know about she needn't have died. I think he was going to kill Lily no matter what. Oh, yeah. Can can we explore why James dying to protect Lily wasn't powerful in the same way that Lily dying to protect Harry was. Yeah. Because my my thought was if sacrificial love really works that way, there ought to be a lot of people that no. can't be killed in the wizarding world. I'm right? actually glad you brought that cuz I thought that same thing. I didn't yeah. want to take away from Lily's sacrifice, but, but why specifically Lily? Yeah, why is her love so strong that oh, it puts a protective shield around her loved ones, but all the other loved ones out there. No, mm-hmm. you didn't love enough. <laughs> because you know? I mean, we get to book seven, and yep. Harry's sacrifice Harry is sufficient to protect a lot, a lot of people. A lot of people. Yeah. So I, it, it's always baffled me, not specifically James, but this is a good instance mm-hmm. of it. Like why other uh, moments and sacrifices of love wouldn't carry the same sort of magical consequences. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point. I don't. I don't have an answer for that. And this is where we invite our listeners to write in (laughs) and tell us what we've missed, or if we're onto something, uh, or if there are other examples that maybe clarify what's going on with that deep kind of magic. The one thing I will say, I think, is that she does use the theme of a mother's love multiple times in the book. Um, I mean, we see, you know, first, of course, Lily sacrificing for Harry. Then later we see Mrs. Weasley putting herself in front of Bellatrix to protect Ginny. Then later we see, like, the most beautiful thing of all, like, Narcissa Malfoy, like, Mm -hmm. lying directly to Voldemort to, you know, save to save Draco really to know that he's okay she doesn't care who wins or loses anymore so it's just like multiple times a mother and then let's not forget like Mrs. Weasley loving Harry like a son like how many times a mother's love actually saves Harry so I think I think that's just one of the themes of the book and maybe if you have it working the same way for multiple people it just kind of takes away from the sacrifice I mean 
Oh, sorry, go ahead, Alex. But then Another it works for Gary, I... and he's not a mother. Yeah. True. Another thought I had was that um, perhaps there are more people protected from dark magic than we realize that we don't see because the story is all about Harry Potter. Nah. And we're sort of more focused on 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 it him is, but we never hear about it right. like right. with anybody else. Not that's, with anybody else in the order. Not with you know anybody at and Hogwarts. I, I feel like if if that was something that happened, you know, like there would be instances that people yeah. would be able to point to throughout history. You know, of right. the Wizarding World yeah. of like, oh well, yeah, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. the love of you know the family protected this particular individual or something mm-hmm. like that. But, and that would be part of Harry's legend and. Yeah, and well, now we know he can't die, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. with dark magic because his, you know, his mom yeah. sprung in the way. The, and... the only thing that I think, and I could be wrong, but that Harry is in some way different than the other cases is there was a prophecy about him. So he has been chosen, you know, by Voldemort. Now I know Neville and him, you know, were both born, and so like Voldemort actually chose Harry. And, and thought that this is the one I need to go after. But there is something special. I mean, there was a prophecy made, so something is, is special surrounding mm-hmm. Harry Potter, and I yeah. don't know exactly what it yeah. is. I think it's... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Crystal. I was just going to... I think it's also implied that there's no precedence for the kind of magic that's happening there. So I don't think we can say that it's happening a lot all over and that we're just not hearing about right. it. Except that Dumbledore has some understanding of it. Yeah. But that's just... He's he really knows wise. everything. Right. He knows everything. <laughs> um, I'm... I, I, I want it to be the intention that Lily knew that she was going to put herself between Voldemort and her son and die when she didn't need to. And that Harry knew he was going to his death to protect all the people at Hogwarts. And so something about the intentionality of giving up your life that way for a specific person or group of people. Um, like a specific martyrdom that creates that sacrificial... Mm-hmm protection but i don't know because i'm sure there's other instances of that yeah mm-hmm. I, I feel like there would have to be there would yeah. have to be because there's probably not a mother in the world who wouldn't throw herself in front of a wand for her son right yeah yeah so that, that's why it so just I, doesn't make sense to me as well except for voldemort's mother true mm-hmm. that yeah, good that point that's a good call i think there's something there yeah, yeah. i don't know Hmm. That's that's one to come back to, I think, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure we will, you know, come back to. It, yes. But, yes. Um, well, would you guys like to hear some of the the color? Yes. Well, that <laughs> you might some be color stuff? A, a little a strong way of putting it, but <laughs> <laughs> we will tolerate. <laughs> okay. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Okay. Well. I just want to point out to all the listeners and everybody here, I mean, let's just, before we get into the specific color theory of red versus green, mm-hmm. uh, let's think about the house colors. I mean, can mm-hmm. we can we mm-hmm. name off the, the house colors of Gryffindor? Red, red and gold. Red. red and gold. And then uh, Slytherin. Green, green and silver. And then blue. Oh, sorry. And then uh, <laughs> Ravenclaw. Blue and bronze. It's blue and bronze, which a lot of people actually think it's blue and silver because in the movies they changed it, mm-hmm. but in the book it's actually blue and bronze. Mm-hmm. I, and I double-checked that to make sure. And then Hufflepuff? Yellow, Yellow and black. black. Okay, now in the metallic colors you know, that we named, the secondary colors, I mean, what, what would you say? I mean, we've got gold, silver, and bronze. This is just a, a quick aside. Hufflepuff didn't even place. And then Hufflepuff <laughs> you know, was last, and... 
it just so happens that the House Cup did line up with Gryffindor at top being gold, Slytherin silver, and uh, Ravenclaw, it, it was bronze. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. Um, interesting. But also, the, also, there is one other thing that I want to point out um, with the house colors, at least. Uh, the primary, the three primary colors are red, blue, and yellow. But green is not. Mm-hmm. And so I was just curious. I mean, did, did, does that have any significance? Can anybody think of any significance? Well, that, that, that correlates with the sort of the virtues right mm-hmm. so that you have wisdom courage and uh, loyalty. loyalty or compassion um, and then ambition yeah and we don't we don't normally think of ambition as itself a virtue just like how green is not itself a primary color it's the combination of other things um, but it's still you know, has its inclusion there. I like that. Yeah. Nice. Well, I just did, I wasn't sure, you know, because again, this is kind of a side note. This is an intro, you know, right. for all of your palettes. Hmm. You know, for the, color the for, yeah, your color palettes. Oh. So um, <laughs> a, little, a little pair of teeth. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so I was just curious if anybody else, you know, I mean, could think since you know the three primary colors mm-hmm. were red, yellow, and blue, but green is not. Green's a combination of the two. And Slytherin just happens to always be, you know, the, the one that's outside of everyone else. If Rowling actually uh, intended that. I mean, do you think she did or was this just a casual thing that happened a lot of coincidence? I think we all agree over here that there's no color theory. So. <laughs> um, oh, man, I think those on my side of the camp, and I know all the listeners out there that also agree with me, would say that, no, miss, you were wrong. I don't think there's nothing to it, but I think you can read in a lot yes. more than there is. Yes. yes. Well, that's because there's a lot there. Okay. Um, but anyways, uh, with red and green, I mean, we do know that, you know, like, there's kind of, there's a dichotomy kind of set up in the same way that good and evil. We've been talking a lot about good and evil in, the, in these chapters. Um, and so I think most people can agree that the battle between good and evil is almost kind of innate in humanity. Um, uh, whether you're religious or not, you know, there's almost this um, this tug, uh, this tension, this push and pull um, of good versus evil. And in, in fact, I think it's what makes a story almost worth a story. I mean, can we all at least mm-hmm. agree on that? Yes, yes, we agree. Okay, we can agree on that. So, um, so writers have been able to use this uh, and and make the best story. So um, I think with Rowling's intentions uh, here, what, what is the dichotomy, I guess, between the two houses? Like, what's what's the best? All right, what what is Red. the good? What is the good versus that the evil here with the two houses? Red is good. Gryffindor is good. Green is bad. Slytherin is bad. Yeah. So I, I mean that this is my basic premise: um, is that red is symbolic of good and um, green is, is actually bad here. So I'm going to read really quick. There's a, uh, there is a psychology of colors, you know, that's actually here. So I brought out all my stuff. Um, so red is actually a very strong color. Yeah. It is uh, a noticeable color that is often used as a caution on caution and warning Mm -hmm. signs. It is often associated with stop or beware. It evoke, it's a hot color that evokes a powerful emotion of passion, lust, sex, uh, energy, blood, and war. 
Um, it's the color used for accents a lot of times on flags, a symbol of pride. Um, there's also yellow. Um, oh, sorry, no, let's just go straight to green because um, I don't, I don't want to go into all these other colors. Yeah. I, I'm going a little long here. So green is actually the color, you know, it's actually a good color. Um, it's nature and health. Uh, it represents growth, nature, money, uh, fertility, and safety. It's a relaxing color that's easy on the eyes. Um, but also, uh, especially dark green, is commonly associated with the military. It's associated mm. with money, finance, uh, banking. It's also, there's green with envy. So there are different uh I guess colors, you know, there, there's color schemes here that can mean different things throughout history. Uh, red, uh, when you represent, you know, the boldness that, I mean, when you think of all the stuff that has gone on associated in this book particularly with the color red, there's Harry's um, courage, you know, he's a Gryffindor. Of course, he, he typifies, you know, what, uh, what the courage is. So some of the um, characteristics of red are, you know, the boldness, the danger. There's also, you know, the passion, life, and almost blood um, that's associated with it. And, and this, this goodness, I mean, there's, you know, Ron's sacrifice, you know, during his chess game. There's Hermione's use of cool logic in the face of fire. Um, there's even Neville's show of bravery as he stands up to his friends. These are typified as... Uh, Gryffindor qualities, you know, which are good, and a lot of them, there's a lot of red associated with these. There's the sparks in the uh, Forbidden Forest, you know, that was the sign of danger. Mars is bright tonight, that's war. You know, there's the elixir of life that you're drinking, which is blood, life, passion. Um, there's, and I'll also go with green using the, the, the bad qualities. Um, you know, the snake is uh, the Slytherin uh, mascot, if you will. And, you know, the snakes in, in the Western world have always been used as, uh, you know, a kind of a trickster or a deceiver, you know, representing evil um, in that. And so, like, some of those traits were, you know, uh, the easy on the eyes, slick, almost silver-tongued. Um, there was, you know... Uh, Let's see, most of the dark magic that was used was uh, including, you know, Avada Kedavra is green. And I'm skipping mm -hmm. over a lot because, listeners, I don't want to go too long, but there's a lot of different uh, uh, uses throughout this book with green and red that typify good versus evil. And I think Rowling did it on purpose. I don't know about the rest of you, but I think the more I looked at this, and I actually looked into this, and you can go on for a long time, but I think she used these colors on purpose. What do you guys think? I think that's a very interesting observation. I think um, even if we can't conclude that she particularly uses these colors um, on, on purpose in the sense that like she picked red and green out just to be good and evil, mm -hmm. I think you're right to point out that the cultural setting within which Rowling is working already has certain associations built in with regards to red and green. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think one of the things that first came to mind to me when you started reeling off all these associations word, green, word vomiting is that uh, <laughs> uh, was the uh, was the the way that we see it used in other film and literature. Like, I mean, you can always tell who the villain is in a Disney movie once you see that green smoke. Yeah. Right. Unless it's, it's Star Wars. I, I'm thinking yeah. Star sure. Wars. You know, I mean, it play. Yeah, it's different in Star Wars, but still, there's the green and 
right there. Right. Yeah, it's just backwards. Well, mm-hmm. I got a wrench to throw in the works. Please. And this particular manifestation of Voldemort mm-hmm. has red eyes. Yes. And Harry has green. Yes. Ooh. That that's very true, and I'm glad you actually brought that up. That was in my notes. I just did not want to bore everyone with it. Uh, you'll notice that some, or maybe you noticed, maybe you picked up that some of the colors. Um, you know, also they have their good qualities and their bad qualities in it. You know, I mean, with even red, there's passion and war that comes from that. Um, and so I think we can all agree that in life, things are typically more complicated than just black and white and things, you know, we, we, Snape is a perfect example. He's in Slytherin. We mm-hmm. think he's bad. And then we really think he's bad once Dumbledore dies but then he turns out it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. Life is a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, and yes, so I totally, uh, there are definitely instances where it seems to go opposite, but mm-hmm. um, I do think that Rowling has accounted for that. Hmm. Anyone else? So we all agree on this theory. <laughs> yeah, well, your theory inspired another thought for yeah. me with regards to these virtues. Um, cause it had not really occurred to me before how green is different from all those other primary colors mm-hmm. and in the same way, ambition is different from all the other ones. So those, those of you that are following along at home, you know, the four classical virtues as pointed out by Plato were prudence or wisdom, courage or fortitude, uh, temperance or, uh, moderation. And then finally justice. Uh, fairness, something like that as yeah. the fourth. Um, the, this is reiterated in, in The Republic, it's reiterated in Cicero's work, Augustine's work. I mean, they're, they're really common. And we immediately see, you know, wisdom, Ravenclaw, courage, Gryffindor, moderate, uh, moderation or temperance, very much clearly a Hufflepuff kind yeah. of characteristic. What has been replaced? Justice. Fairness was replaced with ambition, which I thought was a very interesting switch. Yeah. There's also, I mean, when I was doing my researching, a lot of, uh, of the four elements here represented mm. in the four houses. But again, I feel like we could do a, an entire oh, episode yeah. on just, just this episode. So I don't want to bore I, you know, our listeners with all this, but it is very interesting stuff. Uh, and if you have more questions about it, please write us. We'd love to hear about it. But uh, I think we should go ahead and push on to the very end, the very last scene, and let's uh, let's finish this up. So we have this wrap-up um, with Dumbledore and Harry. Uh, another bit of backstory and... Um, oh, what's the word? Denouement. Sure. <laughs> That's a great word. <laughs> That's not what I was looking for. Um... Uh, yes, so he's he's telling Harry what went down after Harry passed out and answering all of Harry's questions. Um, but he says a very Dumbledore thing here. Let me see if I can find it. Um, things I want to... Harry says, can you tell me things I want to know the truth about? Dumbledore says, the truth that is a beautiful and terrible thing and should therefore be treated with great caution. However, I shall answer your questions unless I have a very good reason not to, in which case I beg you'll forgive me. I shall not, of course, lie. And this is just like a setup for all of our conversations in the future, Harry. I'll tell you what you need to know unless I have a good reason not to tell you. And, you know, ideally, I won't lie. Mm -hmm. 
A pattern repeats itself. Yes. Over and over. So I had forgotten that Harry asks right off, why would Voldemort want to kill me? Yeah. And Dumbledore's like, mm, can't tell you. I'll tell you when you're older. So. Yeah, which, again, I think also points to Harry is special in some way. I mean, Voldemort, I don't think there's any record, you know, of him going after a baby for, you know, I mean, maybe he did. I mean, I'm sure he killed babies, you know, um, you know, while he, I mean, he's just a cruel person, you know, during this height of power, but like to specifically, like, not like intentionally yeah, going to after specifically babies, and, think. you know, target a baby and going after him. There is a reason. So Harry is special. Right. I want to point out to you that, I mean, I, I didn't expect Dumbledore to betray Snape's love for Lily, but I thought it was interesting that the thing he focuses on was the, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, in all of the James and Severus snog- saga, um, snaga, saga, that, you know, they had all these reasons to dislike each other. But the thing he focuses on is that um, James saved, or yeah, James saved Snape's life. And so I think it's interesting because I kept thinking, like, the one thing, if you don't like someone or you really hate someone, the one thing they can do is, like, be nice to you. And it's so annoying. So it's like, I think here it's interesting that what Dumbledore focuses on is that. Snape, to Snape, one of the worst things possible that James could do was, like, prove his own decency, mm-hmm. especially in light of, you know, him marrying Lily. I just thought that was really interesting. I'm just not sure what Snape would have said if he'd have heard Dumbledore rattling yeah. the rat off. Because <laughs> yeah. he he reacts pretty violently to the suggestion that he owes James anything. Mm-hmm. Because he's like, uh, newsflash, it was his fault. fault. Right, like, yeah. I wouldn't have been in that situation in the first place if he hadn't been so cruel. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it is interesting. I, I agree. Dumbledore's protecting mm-hmm. Snape in one sense with, by not revealing the whole Lily connection. Uh, maybe that's a really charitable reading yeah. of what Snape is doing here. But I don't, I don't get the sense that Snape would agree right. with that interpretation <laughs> yeah. of his own motives. Agreed. Well, then we just have to jump to where Dumbledore snatches the house cup from Slytherin. Mm, it's beautiful. I yeah. hate it. Oh, I love it. I hate it. Oh, so every much. time Neville Longbottom gets his ten points, well, that's I'm like beautiful. on the verge of tears. Yeah. Well, but that's a beautiful yeah. thing. But like, I just think of all the Slytherins who are now in their seventh year, and for the last six years they've had the house cup, and they're like, "This is my seventh year. We're gonna get it seven years in a row." And you know, like seven's the most powerfully magical number, and it's like, nope, defeated. By Harry for breaking rules. <laughs> well, yeah. I just, yeah, I mean, I, it makes it a little bit less terrible because Slytherin has been winning forever. But it's like those are kids too. Yeah, you know. And also, he says last minute points, and we know that it's been days since mm-hmm. this all occurred. Yeah, he could because have Harry's given been in the hospital wing. You know, yeah. he could have been like BT Dubs Harry, sixty points for what yeah. you did already and it's already all tallied and so we get to the feast and Gryffindor has won you know it's just this big dramatic to do that Dumbledore wants to have yeah there is the argument of course that McGonagall should not have taken 50 points each from Harry Ron and or yeah Harry Hermione and Neville for being out of bed and then you know they would have been pretty equal anyway Mm -hmm. um but I, I I do love that the winning points go to Neville for you know courage for actually following the rules and standing up to his friend. I think I think that that's I think that's great and it's a really character building moment for all of the kids. But it just seems so unfair to Slytherin. 
<laughs> right. It reminds me of this um, this comment that uh, Malcolm Gladwell made in one of the interviews I remember listening that to that he gave, where he said, "I never root for an underdog." And his point was that underdogs, by definition, are used to losing. You know, they 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 can deal with it. They have that emotional strength. But if you are the expected victor, and you've been winning all the time, a loss can be just devastating. It can just absolutely be crushing you. And we love to hear underdog stories where somebody comes out of nowhere and takes on a team that's so much better than than they were to start. And because of luck and ingenuity and a whole lot of can-do spirit, you know, they 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 win and and they they beat they beat the the expected winner and and that's all that's all well and good. But um, that's I always was I was struck by when he said that I never root for an underdog and it's sort of like this situation here. You know, they these kids, yes, they were kids that are. Could be, you know, this whole feeling of defeat would be so much stronger for them than for Gryffindor that hasn't won in years. Well, I've heard, you know, you got to learn to lose too. That's mm-hmm. true. So, yeah. When it comes to like what what it means about one's character, that only winning is acceptable. Like that adds some interesting mm. dimensions to the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I I found interesting and. You know, we often talk about how the movies can have a sort of eclipsing effect mm-hmm. on the content of the books mm-hmm. in what can be kind of confusing. I forgot that Harry basically talks about Dumbledore as, you know, this mastermind behind it all mm-hmm. as he's reflecting yeah. with, with Ron him. and Hermione. Yeah. He says, I think he sort of wanted to give me a chance. I think he knows more or less everything that goes on here, you know. I reckon he had a pretty good idea we were going to try, and instead of stopping us, he just taught us enough to help. I don't think it was an accident. He let me find out how the mirror worked. It's almost like he thought I had the right to face Voldemort if I could. And then Ron sort of knocks us off by saying, yeah, Dumbledore's off his rocker, all right. And this is comedic relief, break the tension, but also sort of distract us from mm-hmm. what that might be saying. Because, again, anybody who has listened to these podcast episodes through this book knows that we've wrestled with what does Dumbledore know, what's going on in his psychology and his intentions. And Harry gives us a clue, at least to what he thinks. He thinks mm-hmm. Dumbledore orchestrated all of this. Of course, Harry doesn't know the whole story mm-hmm. about what Dumbledore might be up to with the prophecy, which adds layers of intricacy and complexity to all of this. I do think it's interesting, though, that, you know, with that whole theory that Harry has, that Voldemort, when he's caught midair going to the ministry or going to London, he immediately is like, oh, I need to go back. Harry's gone after him. So he almost, like, panics a little, like, you know, it's like he almost was surprised that Harry went after Voldemort and after the stone. So it's, did he really orchestrate it, or was it just, I thought maybe he would try to get to the stone and, like, come overcome all these obstacles, because we've talked about all the obstacles being, like, perfectly suited for him, Hermione, and Ron. Mm. Um, Maybe he thought he would get to the stone first. I'm not sure, but it seems like he was 
really concerned when, you know, and, you know, it almost kills Harry and that upsets Dumbledore. So it's, I don't know, it's hard to picture him orchestrating it all and then being so concerned that he, you know, mid-flight is like, oh no, Harry's gone after the stone and after Quirrell or Voldemort. I don't know. You know, I like to actually think of this moment of maybe, like he knows Harry has got to die. Um, you know, we find that out in the last book. Like we, we know that Harry has got to die for Voldemort, mm-hmm. to, for his downfall. So I like to think that Dumbledore was flying away. I mean, maybe he was sad about this, but like he had to, to let this happen. And then maybe he had a change of mind and he's like, I can't do it. Um, I'm not saying that this is what happened, but he says, I can't do it. And I've got to go back and try to save him. You know, like mm-hmm. I just, it's too heartless to let this, this child go and, and die. And so, mm-hmm. and me not, I mean, essentially I'm sacrificing mm-hmm. this child for the downfall of, of, uh, Voldemort. And, you know, yeah. that's kind of saying, I mean, like, you know, well, you do a little bit of evil to get all this good, you know, maybe yeah. the, the means justify the for end. For the almost. greater good. Yeah, for, for the greater good almost. <laughs> Um, and so I, I like to think of it almost in that term. I mean, but I don't know if that's really what's going on. I just kind of think of it like that. Well, th- as this conversation shows, and it's why this has an enduring quality as a point of discussion for us, the details are always ambiguous enough that it's really hard to pinpoint a satisfactory answer. Mm-hmm. Because it'd be nice if Harry's explanation, well, that just wraps everything up for us. Dumbledore is this really, you know, sort of plotting mastermind behind it all. But then, you know, it's he did fly off to London, mm-hmm. and he did turn around, and he did have this shocked reaction to Hermione. Harry's gone after him, hasn't he? Okay, so he he knew, he had a hunch that this was going to happen, but he's almost fearful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really tough to figure out, maybe it is this battle going on where he knows... Harry's got to die, but doesn't know what part he wants to play in that. Goes back and forth. But also maybe recognizing that there's information he doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Which is what, you know, especially in books, what, five and six yeah. are really important. I get the feeling that Dumbledore had set this up, like we've talked about, as an arena. But that he had planned to intervene in some way. And that him being called away which coincidentally is like the impetus for like, okay, this is a good time to go after the stone. Dumbledore's not here. Um, was a little bit of a wrench in the works. So he had intended for Harry to face Voldemort, but he had also intended to be there to help Harry, I think. Mm -hmm. And so he zooms back because he was meant to be there to control the situation. Mm -hmm. I don't know. They're all good theories. Maybe not. There's so many Dumbledore theories. Yeah. I also enjoyed, I mean, just a little side thing. Uh, I enjoyed Hagrid's present, you know, I mean, Mm because that was probably one of the greatest gifts. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's never known his parents before, and now he gets to see in wizarding photos them actually moving around and smiling, and um, it's got to be, you know, he was just speechless, and no words needed to be said there. Yeah, this is another instance, too, of Hagrid as... A father figure, but as like a childlike father figure, where he comes in broken and blubbering because he feels like this is all his fault and he could have killed Harry. And Harry has to cheer him up. He has to shock him out of it and then cheer him up. Yeah. Um, but then you get this 
beautiful, sweet, thoughtful gift from Hagrid. So it's just, Hagrid is just a very multi-layered character. I love, yeah. I love what she does with Hagrid. Yeah. Well, of course, all of our friends board the Hogwarts Hogwarts Express and head back, whoops, to real life. Uh, Harry goes to spend his summer with the Dursleys. Who are just terrible. Yeah, three months of torture before he gets to go back to Hogwarts. We hope it won't be three months until we go back to Hogwarts with you, uh, dear listeners. Uh, it has been a pleasure uh, to reach this milestone with you, to come to the end of book one and look forward to embarking on book two in the near future. Remember, we are going to have a special Q&A episode. So if you've got questions or comments that you'd really like us to spend a good long time discussing, feel free to send those in. We'd be happy to take a look at them and possibly include them in our next broadcast. You can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at HPBCPodcast, or you can email us at HPBCFanMail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we thank you for joining us. Mischief Managed! Managed.